cannot steal, the eighth commandment, which means that in our mass hysteria, we cannot further prop up politicians and civil rulers that will instill policies that transfer wealth and steal away the business of my neighbor, the job for my neighbor. I'm not loving my neighbor. Hi, I'm Evelyn Ray. Welcome to The Cauldron Pool Show. Today, I'm joined with an incredible guest, Joel Webin. He is a senior pastor of a church. He is also the president of an incredibly uh, influential and important ministry. I'm not going to butcher what it is. I'd love to introduce him and have him tell you all about it. So thank you for joining me tonight on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Um, so like you said, Evelyn, uh, my name is Joel Webin, and I'm the senior pastor of Covenant Bible Church, which is a brand new church plant. Uh, we started in April of last year, 2021. So we're about 15, 16 months old, just a little over a year. We're in Georgetown, Texas. So that's about 40, 45 minutes north of Austin. Uh, the goal was to be close enough to Austin, a major city in Texas, to have some uh, significant influence for the kingdom of God, but far enough away to where our police hopefully don't get defunded. <laughs> so that's yeah. so kind of trying to strike the balance, the tension between safety and significance. Um, so that, that's where we're at. I'm the senior pastor of Covenant Bible Church, Georgetown, Texas, and president of Right Response Ministries and kind of our flagship podcast. We have a few, um, but our flagship podcast that seems like people have benefited from the most is called Theology Applied, a very simple concept. It's right there in the name. Uh, we want to not merely talk about doctrine and theology in the abstract and in an ethereal uh, manner, but rather we want to say, this is what the Word of God says, this is what it means, and this is how it applies to every realm of life, not merely our parenting and our marriages, which is vital, and not merely an hour and a half each week on the Lord's Day, our churches, but also in economics, the marketplace, vocation, mm -hmm. politics, culture, arts, medicine. Uh, we want to champion not merely the inerrancy of Scripture, and Scripture is infallible and authoritative, but also the sufficiency of Scripture for all of life. I think that's... Um so important because so often, and I think you can see in modern times, Christians don't really know how to respond to things going on around them in the world. We can read the Bible, like you mentioned, we can, we can learn doctrine, we can understand theology, but I think the important part is applying that to us every day in our everyday things. Like you mentioned, every aspect of our life, not just on Sunday when you go to a church. Um, right. So I think what you're doing is incredibly important. Um, I know I have come across your podcast, a lot of your videos, a lot of your ministry, and I've really benefited from the things you've had to say, particularly the last couple of years. Being in Australia has been very difficult. Um, we've felt a real absence from the church as a collective. Um, and, you know, I think as John Calvin once said, you know, when, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them bad leaders. And we're seeing mm. that across the spectrum with government, with church, uh, with families. And so at your sort of podcast and your ministry and everything you're doing has just been really helpful for us Australians over here who feel Praise a God. real 
lack yeah, in those areas. But I wanted to sort of jump straight in and sort of hit people straight in the face with um, something that people sort of call a bit of a dirty word. I've noticed it recently because I've started listening to a few older theologians, people may, around the Rush Dooney sort of era, things like that. They were very into theonomy. They were very into um, God's law being, um, you know, expressed in, in, in those sorts of ways. And if you talk about it with the modern church, the modern Christian, people always say to me, Evelyn, you can't, you can't do that. Like it's really bad. And it sort of really took me as a surprise that Christians, many Christians don't understand the theonomy very well um, and what it actually entails. So you're the expert, not me. So I'm not going to pretend that I know a great deal about it. I'm sort of new in the theonomy, like really studying it. Um, but for those who might be listening in my audience who also aren't aware of it, I was hoping you'd be gracious enough to give us a sort of idea of what theonomy is and why you think it's incredibly important for us today as Christians. Great. Yeah. So a couple of disclaimers. First, I am not an expert. <laughs> but by God's grace, uh, so I would be new to this camp as well, but by God's grace, um, he's equipped me in such a way that I, I tend to be a quick study. And so um, I'm able to learn some of these things and, uh, and quickly, I think, by God's grace, teach others. So uh, theonomy, why is it important? And, and first, um, I think just establishing that it is um, a biblical position and not only a biblical position, but I would argue that it is um, a reformed confessional historic position on both sides of the aisle, uh, whether you are uh, reformed Presbyterian or whether you are reformed Baptist. So for myself, I uh, am reformed Baptist. And I, I want to specify there's, there's a distinction between the Calvinistic, what I would say a Calvinistic Baptist. John MacArthur would fall into that camp. I'm grateful for him in many ways uh, versus reformed Baptist, uh, somebody who's confessional. Um, so John, uh, John MacArthur would not hold to the 1689 confession. He's, uh, would reject, uh, Sabbatarianism. Um, th there are other aspects of the confession that, that he would kind of back away from congregationalism. Um, so in terms of church polity or how the church should be governed, um, grace community church would hold to elder rule as their church polity. So they have a plurality of elders. John MacArthur would function kind of as a first among equals. Uh, so he doesn't have, you know, 10 votes to everybody else's one. He, he would uh, function right alongside as a peer among the other elders with, with equal weight and authority, but a first among equals in terms of his gifting, um, that he, they would recognize, the team of elders recognize his unique gifting in the realm of preaching and teaching. And therefore, it only stands to reason from a, a practical standpoint that if he is the most gifted preacher and teacher among the elders, then the people of God would benefit most by his regular preaching and teaching. And so he is the senior pastor there, uh, but he's an equal with the elders. For the Reformed Baptists, we would hold to that same kind of polity, but we had had an extra element in it, which is the congregational piece. And so there are certain things that the 1689 Reformed Baptist Confession of Faith uh, would hold to in terms of church governments. The, 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 the confession would state this must be uh, voted on or decided by the common suffrage 
of the congregation, that the elders cannot alone make certain decisions. Uh, there are many decisions that the elders can, but there are some decisions that the congregation must participate in. So John MacArthur would be an example of a Calvinistic Baptist. I would be Reformed Baptist. Other notable Reformed Baptists living today would be guys like uh, James White, uh, guys like Jeff Durbin, guys like Vody Bauckham. These are guys who would be beyond merely a Calvinistic Baptist, which we praise God for those brothers in Christ, uh, but they would be a Reformed Baptist holding to the, the confession of faith. So all that being said, I think theonomy is a confessional position, but I think part of the reason why there's so much confusion and debate surrounding the subject is because like any term, any theological term especially, uh, there are a lot of different ways of defining it. And so when it comes to uh, the the idea of theonomy, uh, first, I think we have to understand that there's a spectrum, there's a sliding scale. So, so not all individuals who prescribe or have in the past prescribed to theonomy or labeled themselves uh, theonomists, not all of them would hold to the same tenets. Not all of them would agree. And so they're, you know, from Rush Dooney uh, to Gary North to uh, Greg Bonson, and then, and then some of the modern guys like Doug Wilson or Jeff Durbin, there is um, a breadth of distinctions. Um, so I think that it's, you know, it's helpful first just to just to generally define the word in a universal sense that anybody would agree with, that Greg Bonson would agree with, that, you know, and, and these guys like Bonson, for example, would say they, they would want to go beyond and, and specify even more and say, yep, that's good. And dot, dot, dot. However, all of them, I think, would agree with the base, basic definition that theonomy is God's law. That's literally what it means. It means God's law. And Rush Dooney was famous for, you know, saying that it's not whether but which, um, that, that at the end of the day, um, you know, you're going to have a king. It's either, you know, you're going to have some kind of sovereign in any society. Uh, it's either going to be King Jesus and therefore theonomy, God's law, or it's going to be autonomy. It's going to be man's law. And the king will be um, a human king, a monarch, or perhaps if you are in a democracy, you still have man as king. You just have a collection of, of man. You have demos. The people are God. And so we're going to have some kind of king. We're going to have some kind of reigning orthodoxy. And by way of consequence, whatever is deemed orthodox, anything outside of that is going to be labeled as blasphemy. So every society, every nation, every culture is going to have certain blasphemy laws, things that you cannot say. And if you say these things, you might get canceled which probably sounds familiar to, you know, so that we have to recognize secularism and modernity and these kinds of things. This is not neutrality. This is not the absence of religion. It's not whether, but which it's just another religion. So it's not, oh, well, well the, there's the option, a viable option of, you know, this religion, this religion, this religion, or no religion. No, that, that is, um, <laughs> that that's a false dichotomy. We're not choosing between religion and no religion, we're, we're just choosing between this religion or that religion. Secularism is a religion. It has sacraments, uh, meaning things that are holy. It has priests, uh, reigning, you know, priests who are administering sacraments that are, that are basically saying, you are clean. I pronounce pardon. I, I pronounce that you, um, you are holy. If you do these things as an act of worship, 
right? The sacrament of the vaccine, the sacrament of abortion, the sacrament of sodomy, the sac, you know, these kinds of things. If you do these things, support these things, affirm these things, then, then I will absolve you of your sin. There's so, there are certain politicians that would serve as priests. There are certain people, uh, even in, in the medical field, like Dr. Fauci, a high priest mm -hmm. of, of this secular, you know, modernity, the branch Covidians, you know, they, it's a religion. It's absolutely a religion. Mm -hmm. So, Theonomy, the, the way I, I see it, and I think many others, especially more modern theonomists, is they see it as we really don't have an alternative. Uh, we're not trying to be extreme in, in our positions of the scripture. Um, we're, we're simply saying God's law is a good thing. Christians need not despise the law of God um, or have disdain for the law of God. The commandments of God are, are not only right and true, but good. David delights in the law of God. He doesn't just... Um, he doesn't just begrudgingly submit to God's rule and God's law, but rather he delights in the law of God. Um, the law of God functions not merely as a mirror that reveals uh, God's holiness by way of consequence, my sinfulness, and therefore my need for a Savior. That is one of the uses of the law of God, that, that it reveals to us our need for Christ. But the law of God also, for the Christian, is, is a lamp unto our feet. Um, as the Psalms say, that um, it, it doesn't lead us down the path to salvation. No man will be saved by works as done unto the law. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. However, the law doesn't lead us to salvation, but it does lead us from salvation. And what I mean by that is upon being saved by grace alone, the very next thing that the Christian does is respond. We're responding to what God has sovereignly initiated in his grace, in his mercy, right? So 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. So it starts with God. God sovereignly loves us in the beloved, in Christ, the salvific love. He foreknew us before the foundations of the world were laid. He predestines us. He chooses us. He calls us. He quickens us by the power of the Holy Spirit, regenerates us by the Holy Spirit, endows us with the gifts of faith and repentance that are really just two sides of a singular coin. Repentance, we turn from our sin, but faith ensures that we don't just turn from our sin to another sin, trading one sin for another, but faith uh, causes us not merely to turn from sin, but turn to Christ in personal trust. Faith, the, the, the Reformed position would argue the three primary components are knowledge, uh, assent, right? So I know something. There, there are false doctrines that I know, but I do not give my assent to. I don't affirm. So knowledge and assent, and then personal or implicit trust. And so God gives us the gift of saving faith that we know him. We agree with what he says about truth. And, and then we uh, implicitly trust him, personally trust him. We cast ourselves upon his mercy. And so God does all these things. But, but after that, the, the very next question is, Okay, so, so then what is man's response? And I would argue as simply as possible, well, the response is that we love him. When God opens our eyes, gives us spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear and, and causes us to become new creations in Christ Jesus, removes the heart of stone, Ezekiel 36, replaces it with a heart of flesh that's malleable and softened and receptive to his work, uh, the immediate response of every Christian uh, having been loved by God is that we love him in return. First John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. The next step is Jesus said in, in the gospel of John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? So we love because he first loved us. That's step one. Step two is, okay, 
now that I love God because he first loved me, what do I do? What do I do, Jesus? I love you. I want to demonstrate my love for you. Um, I, I want to, to love you, not according to, to the devices of men, not according to my own creative freedom and liberty. Um, I don't want to merely love you the way I think uh, love should be, but I want to, to actually love you, which, which <laughs> the condition is, is that if I'm really going to love you, I have to do that which you deem as being loving. Right, a popular book mm. back in the day that I think has some merit. There's some problems with it, but some merit is uh, the five love languages. And the whole premise mm. of the book was, you know, especially as mm. applied to the relationship in marriage, is like, well, all right, you may have this love language that that you demonstrate love through this specific avenue, but if your spouse feels loved in this other way, then you may be loving your spouse, you know, at at the tenth degree, but your spouse feels as though you're not loving them at all because your love language is giving gifts but your spouse, their love language is quality time. And so you're giving all these gifts or acts of service or words of affirmation, but they just want you to sit down on the couch next to them and, and, and be with them, right? And so, well, you can take that same principle, that same concept and apply it to, to our relationship with God. It's not enough for us to love God on our terms. Not only is it not enough, but it's actually offensive to God. Um, we, we must love God on his terms. How does God feel loved? And Jesus says, if you love me, you obey my commands. So we love because he first loved us. All right. Because we love him, we obey his commands. That's how Jesus, that's Jesus' love language, by the way, is, is faith. It, Jesus feels loved. If I put it into these kind of <laughs> relational human, uh, you know, emotional terms, Jesus feels loved uh, in two primary ways, when people trust him and when people demonstrate that trust by obeying him trust and obey. You want to make Jesus feel love? That's how you do it. You trust him and the work that he's already done, but you also obey him. And you're not obeying him in order to be saved, but you're obeying him as a response of gratitude for the free salvation you've already received by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But after obedience, the very next question is, okay, obey Jesus, right? Obey my commands is what he says. John chapter 14, verse 15. What are his commands? How many commands does he have? And what are these commands? And I think the Bible is clear. Jesus has two. It's real simple. He has two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. This is Matthew 22, verse 37 through 40. The second is like it, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. All the other commandments, the text goes on to say, Jesus says this, all the other commandments depend on these two commandments. All the prophet and the law depend on these two commandments. So Jesus' commandments are that we love God with everything and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. Then the next question is, how do I love God with everything? How does God define that? How does God describe that? What does it look like according to God? Because we're loving on his terms, not ours. How does God describe loving him with everything? And how does God describe and define loving my neighbor as myself? Well, here comes in the Decalogue meaning Exodus chapter 20, the 10 commandments. We have two tables of the law, 10 commandments, but two headlines. The first four of the 10 commandments, they describe for us in great detail how we love the Lord our God with everything. Have no other gods before me. Do not make any graven images. Do not take the Lord's name in vain and remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. We could define those as saying, uh, love God more than anything else. That's the first. The second is love God um, through faith and not by sight, right? No, no graven images. We walk by faith and faith cometh by hearing, not by seeing, but by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. So we are a word centric, hearing faith-based people. 
not sight. We don't try to take the immortal, invisible God and make him visible and tangible and physical as Israel did in the wilderness with the golden calf. It's important that people recognize they, they weren't breaking the first commandment. I mean, they were by proxy, but, but they weren't saying this is another God. No, they were saying this is Yahweh, and he looks like this. Here he is, this golden calf. So, so worship God and love him above all else. That's the first commandment. Worship by faith and not by sight, trusting him. That's the second commandment, to not make any graven images. The third, not taking his name in, in vain, is that our worship and our faith should be with sincerity and not trivial and trite. And the fourth, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, is that we rest in God. In the Christian Sabbath, we believe that Christ, who is Lord of the Sabbath, did not remove the Sabbath, by virtue of his life, death, and resurrection and the inauguration of the new covenant, but rather than removing the Sabbath, he renewed the Sabbath from the last day of the week to the first day of the week by virtue of raising, rising from the dead on the first day of the week. And in this, we even have a picture of the gospel that in old covenant Israel, they would do six days of work and receive as kind of, in a sense, we could say a reward for their work. They would receive rest on the seventh day, whereas the Christian in this gospel dispensation, for lack of a better phrase, I'm not a dispensationalist, but this gospel age, the Christian begins his week by grace alone, resting in the triune God, receiving, the Puritans would say, the, the Sabbath day, the Christian Sabbath is the market day for the soul. We receive all this nourishment and, and ample gifts from the Lord and his bounty and his mercy and kindness. And from that position, then, we work as a response to what we've received. This is how these four commandments, how we love the Lord our God. Then the next six commandments is how we love our neighbor as ourselves. So COVID, they were taking, this is what evangelicals, big Eva was doing. They were taking the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, getting down to the general mm. equity, the blueprint, the bedrock of that sixth commandment, thou shalt not physically murder your neighbor. Well, the heartbeat of that is thou, sh thou shalt, if we state it in the positive sense, thou shalt esteem properly and biblically esteem the sanctity of human life and therefore um, seek to do no physical harm to your neighbor. That is one, and that's the emphasis, one of the ways that we love our neighbor. But there are six commandments that show us how to love our neighbor. The ninth commandment is thou shalt not bear false witness, which means thou shalt not perpetuate psychosis, mass psychosis, and fear and anxiety to my neighbor about a virus that is not nearly as deadly as the media continues to portray. Right. So, so, you know, and, and beyond that, another one is thou shalt not steal the eighth commandment, which means that in our mass hysteria, we cannot further prop up politicians and civil rulers that will instill policies that transfer wealth and steal away the business of my neighbor, the job from my neighbor. I'm not loving my neighbor. Loving my neighbor is not just a, a truncated, narrow one path. There are six different ways to love my neighbor, and I cannot do one at the expense of the other. And so my point is, all this is clearly dictated in the scripture. And again, with the Westminster Confession of Faith, that's Reformed Presbyterians, and the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, that's Reformed Baptists, we see that, that the law of God can be divided. There are three uses and three divisions. I'm almost done. The three divisions of the law <laughs> is that we have the moral law of God, that's the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, then we have the civil law, and we have the ceremonial law. Christ fulfilled all three portions of the law, moral, civil, and ceremonial. But the question is not merely which portions of the law he fulfilled, he fulfilled all of it. The question is, which portions did he abrogate? Did he end? 
right? And, and we would say biblically that the Reformed, faithful, Orthodox Christian position is that Christ fulfilled and abrogated, ended the ceremonial law because he is now our forever high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and he himself is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the final sacrifice, and by his blood, he purifies us and makes us clean, so we no longer need these washing rituals and different things like that, so he fulfills and abrogates the ceremonial law. He uh, fulfills but continues the moral law, the Ten Commandments. The only thing left in question, and this gets us back to theonomy, is, is the civil law of God. What about the hundreds of civil codes, case law, that is given to Israel as a theocracy, as a nation state? And, and both the Westminster and 1689 Confessions say that the civil law was unique to Israel, therefore it has been fulfilled by Christ and abrogated, except there's an exception except the general equity of the civil law, which means each civil code that we find with Israel, we can get to the, the general equity, the heartbeat, the spirit of the law, not just the letter, but the spirit of the law. And wherever we find the spirit of a civil law in the Old Testament given to Israel, the spirit of that law ultimately has its root in the moral law, the Ten Commandments, mm. right? So building a border uh, around the, the perimeter of your house so that your neighbor doesn't roll off you know, and 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 die in his sleep because people would sleep on top of the roof because they didn't have AC during the summer months and hot months. Well, that, that has its root in the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not harm, physically harm your neighbor. Um, well, okay, so, so America now, it's not a one-to-one -one ratio. Like if I don't have a perimeter on the roof of my house, I, I'm somehow in sin or committing a crime. No, but the general equity is don't hurt your neighbor. So how do we apply that in America, in our time, our culture, our technology? Well, uh, speed limits on the road might be an example, mm. or a perimeter on a balcony where people actually are on a second story, you know, but not necessarily the whole roof. And so we look at that, and, and when we look at a nation like America or most Western nations, even including Australia, as, as crazy as, as Australia has been these last couple of years, we still, what we see in general is this, we see case law within the civil realm of the law of the Old Testament being the general equity being rooted out and then applied in a specific place and time with their culture and technology in a way that is relevant for today. That is, this is my argument. There Again, a wide spectrum with guys like Gary North and Bonson and Rushton. But my point is that principle right there, applying the general equity of the civil law and upholding the moral law, not just for Christian people, but for all people, that is God's law. That is theonomy, whether you want to call it general equity theonomy or whatever it is. And the last thing I'll say is this, it's important that we recognize God's law is not merely given to Christians because the basis for God imposing his law is not the basis of God as savior. Jesus is savior of some. Uh, Jesus is not a universal savior, but God is a universal creator. And it's not on the basis of salvation that God imposes his law on individuals in society. It's on the basis of God as universal creator. God's law is given by the universal creator to all of his image-bearing creatures. So the moral law of God and the general equity of the civil law, which has its root in the moral law of God, this is binding on all people in all places in all times, whether they acknowledge Christ or not.
And that's mm. articulated in Romans 1 through natural revelation and Romans chapter 2 through natural law, that even the Gentiles who never received a prophet or any special revelation, the Gentiles still had the moral law of God written on their hearts, and therefore they were accountable to uphold it. All right, I'll stop. Mm. No, please don't stop. That was uh, really well said, really well articulated. Um, I was learning as you as you were talking, so it was really helpful. A couple of things you mentioned that I wanted to make comments on. At the very start, you spoke about um, how everybody has a religion, everybody has a God. I've said something similar before in that um, I, I remember putting out a tweet saying that my uh, theology determines my vote. Um, and I said, everybody's theology determines their vote. And somebody said to me, theology is, um, you know, your understanding of God and I'm an atheist, so that's not relevant to me. And I sort of countered that by saying, well, no, theology is your understanding of God. Who's God for you? Is it is it you? Is it your wife? Is it is it your, your husband? Is it um, your sporting games, your video games? Like the, everybody has a God and a religion, uh, whether they like to admit or not. And we are very ripe for narcissism. So I would, I would suggest that most people's gods are probably themselves. They, they want to be their own, um, their own God, their own judge, their own, um, you know, arbiter of all right and wrong. Um, and that's kind of what you're seeing. People are pushing God out and putting themselves up in that position. Um, so that was something that I, I found helpful. You sort of confirmed that for me. Um, another thing as well, because a lot of people were coming to me saying, what about legalism? Um, mm -hmm. What about all of those sorts of um, arguments? Right. And legalism, and we obviously know legalism is the biggest problem in our world today, right? We, we have people mm. who are just so meticulous in their quest to be moral, loving God and loving their neighbor, right? That's what we really need to be worried about. And of course, I'm being sarcastic. Uh, we live <laughs> in an antinomian world. We yeah. live in, the, the West is is lawless. And and yet you're, what you're stating is exactly, I mean, I've, I've come across up against the same kind of criticisms. It's like, well, what about legalism, Pastor Joel? What about legal? And I'm like, do you really think that's our biggest problem right now? Right? We have a whole month the month of June of, of gay pride parades, we've got uh, we we we've got a drag queen story hour, you know, and 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 your your big concern for our culture today is that we might be too meticulous in keeping the law of God. I, I don't think I I just I think that's insane. That's swallowing a camel and straining a gnat. The gnat might be there. Legalism is a viable option, and it is a heresy. It is sin, and it should be avoided. But I think that is the gnat. Uh, when it comes to our culture and our time and our place today, the camel is antinomianism, the meaning against law, lawlessness. That's the, the, the big problem, I think, with our culture today is that we are um, an immoral culture. And, and mm. guys in the theonomy vein, regardless of where they fall on the spectrum, and I would be kind of on the lighter end, but, but that's all they're trying to do is say God's law still matters. It's still relevant. And these New Testament texts that talk about we're not under law, but under grace, um, that doesn't mean that the law of God is no longer binding. That means that the Christian is under grace when it comes to judgment, right? That the Christian will be judged on the merits of Christ and his imputed righteousness, which is received by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. So in terms of being under grace and not under law, that doesn't mean that the law is abrogated or done away with. So when we say the law is still binding for not only Christian people, but all people, 
Uh, we're not saying that we're under law as our judge, uh, but we are saying that the law still is the lamp unto our feet. It's still the guide. It's still the tutor, the teacher. It is, it's the compass. It, it's the standard. The law of God is still the standard, but the Christian will be judged on the basis of Christ fulfilling the law, keeping the law, every jot and tittle, rather than our own inability to keep the law. But th there's a massive difference in being under law versus under grace versus the law still being in effect. The apostles in the New Testament are not saying, oh, the moral law doesn't exist. And we know they're not saying that because nine of the Ten Commandments, they reiterate to both Jews and Gentiles in their letters. They say children should still obey their parents. And not only do, when they do this, they quote the Decalogue, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter six, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And here's the crazy thing that'll really mess with people. Oh, that sounds like prosperity gospel. Oh, well, then take it up with the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit who inspired him because he says not only is the commandment still in full effect, the law that children should obey their parents. But then he goes further and says, and this is the first commandment with a promise that it will go well with you. you it will go well with you mm -hmm. and that you will live a long life on the land and the land that you are inheriting. So according to the apostle Paul, and we have to remember the timing, this is after the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Christ, and the outpouring of the spirit at Pentecost. The new covenant is in full effect. And the apostle Paul, he still says, Here's one of the Decalogue commandments. Both the commandment is still in effect and the promise is still good. What do you do with that? You know, I, I think what you do with that is you say, yeah, we are still under the law in the sense that the law is still binding. It still directs us. It's still the standard. We are not under the law for those who are in Christ in terms of judgment. I think that's the way that you deal with those kinds of texts. Mm, absolutely. I think regeneration is, happens so that we can keep um, the law of God. And Amen. I think it's all it's all part of that. But what I wanted to sort of ask you, um, leading off from what you last said, is how do we get all of this to apply to a world that hates God's law? And not only that, how, how do we as Christians deal with an unbelieving world when it comes to presenting these ideas? Because Christians find this idea hard to swallow. Um, and I, I can only imagine that people who aren't saved by grace uh, would find this even more challenging to fathom. Like, how dare you put your religion above mine? Like, how would you uh, and what would you give as advice for people who are coming up against such a morally depraved, <laughs> unbelieving world who just doesn't seem ready for this? Right. Yeah, great question. I, again, I would just point them to that principle of, you know, it's not whether but which, and and just say every society has a law, you know, and even that when 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 the New Testament talks about Gentile nations being lawless, um, it doesn't mean they have no law. It just simply means they're lawless in the sense that they have rejected God's law. Um, but every society has certain laws, um, a, a certain orthodoxy, certain boundaries that you have to stay within. And if you're outside of those boundaries, there are certain penalties and there are certain punishments and there are blasphemy laws and these kinds of things, you know? So, so a, a society will either, you know, a society will either cancel, you know, um, you know, so, uh, uh, Satanist, or they'll cancel Dr. Seuss, you know, but they're going, they're going to cancel somebody, they're, they're going to have penalties for somebody. So I, you know, one of the arguments that I would make for, for, you know, the person who's agnostic or atheist or deems himself not to be religious and, and, and wouldn't, you know, discard the Bible and not see it as authoritative or any of those things is I would just, 
I would just say, okay, but there are problems in society now. There are certain rules um, at, that, that are creating certain problems, and there are certain penalties, and this and you know, because everybody wants this. One of the things that I've said before is this: um, people want the principles of Christ while rejecting the person of Christ. And if you if you accept the principles of Christ while rejecting the person of Christ, you will never have the true peace of Christ. But people, meaning what people want is, is they want to hang in midair, right? They, they don't want, they want to reject the foundation, right? They, they want apples. I really like apples. You can make apple pie with apples. You know, I'm an American. We love apple pie. And so I love apples, but I hate orchards. Well, okay, well, then eventually you're not going to have apples and it won't take long, just a generation or so. And if you get, if you burn all the orchards down, you may have stockpiled apples, right? Previous generations may have been really diligent, good stewards of those orchards and stockpiled a bunch of apples, but without the orchard, you, you won't have the apple. You can't hang this, this idea of a libertarian, you know, or, or, you know, classic liberal, you know, society with its, you know, in midair. And that only works. Uh, the only way the West has, has gotten as far as it's gotten um, is, is because it's still running off the fumes of the Christian worldview. Mm -hmm. So you talk to the atheist or somebody who rejects the scripture as divine revelation, and, and there's still certain things we're going to have in common, you know, like, like murder. Now, they're not going to apply it to the unborn, and that's an inconsistency. We should point that out, right? We should make, we should confront the atheist, the lawless one, the antinomian. We should confront them with their inconsistency, make them deal with it. And that's not hostility. That's, that's not being uh, mean-spirited. Um, that is a very loving thing to do because that's Romans 1. Romans 1 is, is saying that God has clearly displayed himself and his His attributes, not all of them, there's some things that are only revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but through natural, through special revelation, but in natural revelation, by what God has made, he has displayed certain aspects, attributes of himself, namely his eternal power, his divine nature. These things have been not only displayed, but, but Romans 1 goes further and said they've actually been perceived by all people. The problem is that unbelieving, unregenerate man a person is either for Christ or against him. There is no neutrality. Um, everybody has an allegiance. So for the unregenerate man, Romans chapter 8 says the mind of the sinful man is not just indifferent or neutral or uninterested, but hostile towards God and his law. He cannot submit to God's law, or uh, he does not submit to God's law, nor can he. he he's actually not even not willing, uh, but also not able. He's not able to submit to the law of God. So what the unregenerate person does with natural revelation that screams to, to him very clearly that there is a God in heaven who made heaven and earth and that he is a thrice holy God and he has a standard for how his creatures behave themselves, how they live in his world. All these things are apparent, not just displayed, but perceived. So the unregenerate hostile individual, uh, they seek to suppress the truth in deeds of unrighteousness. And what we do, Doug Wilson has said this, is we simply kind of tickle their armpits and poke their arms. Mm. It's like somebody holding a beach ball, right? Underneath the water. This yeah. is the illustration that he uses. I have to give him credit for it, but they're holding a, a beach ball underneath the surface of the water. And we just come up to them, not mean-spirited, but we come up to them. We start to tickle them and poke them and say, what do you got there? What do you got there? What do you... And we force them to be confronted with the obvious reality that they know they know is there. Uh, so my point is, you can do that with, you know, something like abortion. Uh, but the reason you can do it, 
my point is this, the reason why you can, can show, reveal that as an inconsistency, the reason why you can actually, in your presuppositional apologetic, you can actually trap the unregenerate pagan is because there are certain things that the pagan agrees with. There is some common ground. And the reason why there's common ground is because the, the pagan was created in the image of God, natural law written on his heart, and he lives in God's world. So he, the pagan himself is an image bearer of God with a conscience, and he lives in God's world, and God's world speaks to God's existence. And, and so what we can do is we can say, okay, you don't think this should apply to the unborn. Um, how do you feel about a nation that, that, um, that just gets rid of any laws about homicide? Right, that, that your neighbor can can walk into your house and shoot you in the face, um, at, with with complete impunity. How do, how do you feel about that? Do you like that? Uh, well, no, I don't like that. Well, why? Why? Mm. Give an account, because I can say that that's horribly heinous and wicked and immoral, and and I have a reason for that. What is your reasoning? What's your basis? Right? I mean, if if you're an atheist and 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 you you know would adhere to Darwinianism and all these, might makes right. If you're bigger and you're stronger and somebody has something that you want, you take it. That's natural selection. That's, you know, what, what's wrong with that? You don't have any argument, right? You are without, Romans 1 again, without an apologia, without an excuse, oh man. Um, be, so my point is the unregenerate unbeliever, um, it, it's, it's not that we have this massive chasm between us because we know something they don't. That's actually not what, what scripture speaks to. Um, the massive chasm is not in regards to knowledge and ignorance. It's in regards to submission and rebellion. The, the, the unbeliever, their, their primary issue is not intellectual. It is moral. It's not as though the unbeliever is ignorant to the things of God. Because he's ignorant, therefore he rebels as a fruit of his ignorance. Rather, it's precisely the opposite. It's that he, in his heart, is at enmity with God in rebellion. And because he rebels, he takes the things that have been plainly shown to him. He holds them underneath the surface of the water and tries to pretend that they're not there. Mm -hmm. So it's not that ignorance gives birth to rebellion. The Bible says that it starts with rebellion. It is first moral that, that causes someone to progressively become more ignorant as they lie and suppress the truth and deeds of unrighteousness. And so all we're doing is bringing the person back to what God has already revealed to them, showing them there is a God in heaven. There is therefore a transcendent universal standard of right and wrong and morality. Um, you And you like that. You, you, you like that. You want this to be wrong and you want this to be right. And, and here are all the things that, that you actually would agree with God's law. And here are the things where you're disagreeing. You, you like this. You don't like that. Let me show you how the, the stuff that you don't like is just the consistent outflowing of the stuff that you do like. And then lastly, show them how what you want is you want a halfway house. I think this is what it all boils down to. Uh, people want a halfway house between heaven and hell between Christ and chaos. There is no halfway house. There, there, there is no middle ground. There, there is no suspension in midair. You will either have Christ or you will have chaos. You will either have order or you will have disaster. You will either have morality or you will have immorality. There, there is no neutrality and there's also no standing still. You're either paddling upstream against the desires of the flesh, against wickedness, against unrighteousness by the power of the spirit and by grace, or, or you're not sitting still. If you stop rowing, you're moving downstream. 
And what we have right now, people say, I, we just want to live here. We want to live in this libertarian, classical, liberal, you know, um, quasi, you know, whatever my neighbor does in the privacy of his home is his. But we want to live in this society with these laws, this kind of uh, moral framework forever. And and my my point would be. Um, that's an impossibility. That's a contradiction of terms. You can't live here forever. And that's what we're seeing right now. We, we, we've mm. seen Western nations um, all of a sudden adopt these principles. And then just in the last few years, we've seen, oh, the current is picking up. Here we go. Whoa, over the mm. falls. And that's not a coincidence. That's the way God has designed the world. There's no halfway house. There's no staying still in the middle. It just doesn't exist. And I think the more that we can convince people of that, more and more people are saying, whoa, leftists are are radical. We don't want anything to do with them. Praise God. God in his providence has used tyranny and used these kinds of things to wake a bunch of people up. A bunch of people are red pilling. Mm -hmm. And all we have to do by God's grace is, is just take them another step further and say, okay, so you don't want to go over the Niagara Falls. You just you just saw people that you used to associate with politically and culturally and you know go over the falls. Um, and you don't want to go over the falls but you also don't want to get out of the water over here on the high ground on the rock. You, you want to just stay right here. Um, could I perhaps uh, talk to you for a moment about how that's not a viable strategy, how that doesn't mm. exist, that you these guys went over the falls because they stayed in the water and they were just a little bit ahead of you. And, and here's the alternative. The only alternative is the high ground. You must come over here or this will happen to you also, right? You cannot have the principles of Christ, not long-term, maybe for a moment using residual capital of previous Christian generations, but long-term indefinitely, you cannot have the principles of Christ while rejecting the person of Christ, period. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an easy argument to make. It's just, it's, you know, step one, step two, connecting dots, but that's, again, the problem is not intellectual. It's, it's not that this is such a complex argument that people can't intellectually grasp it. No, the problem is moral. They're lying and suppressing the truth and deeds of unrighteousness. So what we want to do is poke them in the armpits, make the beach ball pop up out of the water and then say, deal with that. Mm -hmm. You have to deal with that. Don't just scramble and try to push it back. Uh, deal with that. And, and here's the only resolution, Jesus Christ, salvation in him alone, a new heart, uh, delighting in God's law. And I, I think that's happening. I think a, a ton of people are red pilling and out of those who are red pilling by God's grace, some of them are actually being born again. So. Mm. Yeah, I think it's, you know, like, as you said, providence, like you look at everything that's happened, especially over the last few years. And you, you know, if I'm post mill in my eschatology, but if I wasn't, you'd be going, wow, these are all the signs of the end of the of the world. Like it's right. doom and gloom, pessimistic, uh, because things have been really bad. But I see a hopeful um, circumstance in that there's this new era of shepherds that are emerging from this and it's like a great leveling. And so if you're not holding on to things that are eternal, you're not holding on to things rooted and grounded in Christ, you will fall off the shelves and you will smash. Um, and I think, you know, that's sort of where we're at as a society at the moment. But like you mentioned, as Christians, I think that when you submit to Christ, you will obey his law. It's as simple as that. Um, anything more complicated? Well, uh, 
I, I don't like to judge people whether or not they're saved, but it's a natural thing to obey God's laws when you submit to him. And I think part of submitting to God's laws as well as Christians is going and spreading the gospel. That's all part of submission to his laws. Um, and so I think that's something really important for us to do now, especially with the world around us, how it's going. That's one of the best ways we can obey his laws. Um, you mentioned before that we're sort of living on the fumes in Western civilizations of uh, once great nations, which were built upon Christian uh, sort of values and morals and ethics. Um, I think it was George Washington. He said, society is built upon two pillars, one uh, religion and two morality. And religion was Christianity. Um, and it was as plain as day. And he sort of said, when the two pillars of a society um, are sort of kneecapped, whatever you've built on top will come falling down. And if you look around us at the moment, what, what is under attack? Christ. Everything is an attack on Christ and on God, God's laws, as you said, all of his laws. Um, and, you know, you can kind of see things that we've built falling to the ground. And so when we're building again, um, as Christians, we have to remember the pillars that we choose to build on. And, right. you know, we have to obviously do that on God's laws and, and not some secularist, uh, humanistic <laughs> idea that's inconsistent with morality. Um, right. So, yeah, really a profound thing that was said a long time ago that is really relevant today. But I wanted to sort of segue that into uh, politics, uh, scripture in, in culture, because I, what I really appreciate about what you do, as I mentioned at the beginning, is you don't just basically read theology um, and you have your textbook, your Greek, your Hebrew, all these things. And, you know, you do that. But what I appreciate is how you apply it to everyday things, because so often Christians are going, I don't know what to do in this situation. And there are there are a few voices who are willing to um, speak about politics, economics, and all of these other areas that are actually really crucial to the Christian. And so I kind of wanted to sort of get your insight why you think it's really important to involve scripture with those particular aspects of modern day life and what we should as Christians be doing um, to sort of seek Christ through the chaos with all of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's great. Um, I think it's really important because Jesus is king. Uh, Jesus is not just, you know, the, you know, the, the high priest and he's not just the final prophet, uh, right? Like Hebrews chapter one, you know, that in these last days, right? You know, times before in many ways and at many times God spoke to us through our fathers, the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Uh, he's the exact imprint of the Father's nature. He's the fullness of the radiance of, of God. And so uh, Jesus is the final prophet, the final revelation. He's the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, who always lives to make intercession for us. Um, but Jesus is also king, and, and he's not just a king. He's the king. He's king of kings. Um, and, and so I think that obeying Christ, uh, one of the things the Puritans used to used to say, uh, you know, and, and talking about Puritans who founded America, not just the English Puritans, but American Puritans who, who came over and, and wanted to establish a distinctly 
uh, Christian nation is, is they believed that part of what fueled them and, and, and going across the pond, which was treacherous and, and perilous in their day, was, you know, this, this idea that the, the crown rights, they used to say, you know, the crown rights of, of King Jesus, uh, one, one of them needed to be expanded, needed to be pushed over all the earth, that the, the knowledge of, of the glory of God would fill the whole earth as, as the waters cover the sea. Uh, one of the mantras that, that was stated again and again in America and its founding was no king but Christ, no king but Christ. And so um, this idea of, of the, the kingly royal um, reign of, of Jesus is significant throughout all the scriptures. First um, Corinthians chapter 15 says, and he must reign until all his enemies have been made a footstool for his feet. And the last of these enemies is death. And I think that a lot of people haven't really pieced it together. And so maybe perhaps it's not as clear as I'm about to state it for them in their minds. Um, but theologically, a, a, lot of, a lot of Christians function as, as though the first of Christ's enemies to be defeated by him will be death. But the Bible says that death is the last of his enemies. And what I mean by that is a lot of people, they, they assume that we're just not going to, um, we're just not going to get very far in this life until Christ returns, that we're not going to be very successful, um, that, that, that we're not going to disciple the nations, we're not going to have Christian governments, we're not going to have Christian laws, that, that everything is going to just, in general, spiral downward, uh, that, that things are going to become worse and worse and worse until Jesus returns, which I, I would argue is, is bad biblical exegesis, but it's also just being bad historians and just not looking at mm -hmm. Um, not not just your nation's history, because you know a lot of nations are are in the big scheme of things very young and have only existed for a short time. But if we look at world history, if we look at the the history of empires, right? There, there's a famous book that's just a collection of a couple of essays called The Fate of Empires that talks about that the average lifespan of an empire throughout world history is about 250 years, whether it be Assyria or Babylon or the Persians and Medes or, or whether it be Rome, you know, and, and you take that and you look at nations like mine, this, I think, at like 247 years, you know, like right there on, on the mark. And, and, you know, but these empires, um, when you look before the, the, the coming of Christ, when you look, you know, BC within world history, um, they, they were a terror. They were an absolute terror to the known world at the time. And, you know, another Doug Wilson-ism is, you know, he says, well, okay, yeah, we've got some bad things um, in recent history, in the last 2,000 years post-Christ. Um, yeah, we've got, you know, the Third Reich. But the Third Reich can be measured in a matter of months. Um, but there has never been a terror like Babylon. There has never been yeah. a terror like Assyria. Something dynamic changed in the world. So not just our, our exegesis of scripture, but when we look at world history, something changed, like, like very clearly changed from, from one day to the next, approximately 2,000 years ago. And, and I would argue that it's not a coincidence that that has to do with King Jesus and that in his earthly ministry, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension uh, in glory, in majesty to, to the right hand of God, that, that in this, uh, Christ bound the strong man. Right, woe to you, O O Earth, for the devil has been cast down to you. This great battle in the sky between the archangel Michael and Lucifer and all those who followed him, and the devil was cast down. The, the devil was never sovereign, never sovereign. So even one of the oldest books of the Bible ever written is the Book of Job, and and the opening of the Book of Job is you know that the sons of God are meeting before God. This kind of this high council meeting, um, and Satan, Lucifer, was among them, and and you know God 
converses with Satan, says, well, from where have you come from? From going to and fro over the earth, his domain. But even the sense of using that terminology, that, that the earth belonged to Satan, I'm, I'm using that terminology loosely. Um, God never gave up the earth. Mm. God never abandoned the earth, and he never relinquished his sovereign rule over the earth. So Satan had a, a prominent position of power over the earth and the kingdoms of the earth. That's, that's why Satan, uh, with validity, could tempt Jesus in the wilderness by showing him the kingdoms of the earth and saying, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you these. Satan wasn't bluffing. Satan was trying to make an enticing offer that Jesus, of course, in his impeccability, he was unable to sin as, as a second member of the triune God in his full divinity. Uh, he resists. But, but it was a valid offer on, on Satan's part. And so my, my point is that there's a real sense in which Satan had domain. He's cast down out of heaven, comes down to the earth, uh, the prince of this air, and has real, real mastery, real authority, uh, yet all of it underneath God's sovereignty. So even in the, you know, the, the discourse in the book of Job, um, God said, have you considered my servant Job? And, 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 you know, God lines out with meticulous detail what Satan is actually has permission to do and, and what he cannot do. And uh, God says at first, you cannot even touch his flesh. And so Satan does everything he can except for that. And he has to stop at the boundary that God gives him. So you, you could say it like this. There was a leash around Satan's neck. And, and what happens in the ministry of Christ and his coming is, is that Satan, the, the leash gets a lot shorter. The strong man is bound. And Jesus gives us this parable, right? That if you want to go and plunder a house, first you must enter and bind the strong man, and then you can go and plunder all of its goods. And, and so what I would say is Satan was always on a leash. He has never been sovereign. There is only one, one entity, one person what, with, with what we would call auton full autonomous freedom, libertarian autonomous freedom to do whatever he wills, whatever he pleases. And that is the sovereign creator, God. Satan has never been autonomous in his liberty. And he's never been sovereign in his reign, but he did have a lot more leash. He had a lot more leeway until 2000 years ago, something happens, right? And, and, and we see the, the, that just the explosion of the gospel going out into the four corners of the earth, every tribe, tongue, and nation, that one of the things that Satan is no longer able to do is to deceive the nations. And so Satan still roars, right? He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. But the Lord, uh, the Lord Jesus, who bound him, who is the rightful king over not just heaven, but earth, he's bound Satan in such a way that he devours less. He devours less and he deceives less and, and, and uh, he prowls around, but, but on a shorter leash. And so my point is, Jesus is king and, and something radical happened 2000 years ago in Jesus, whether we theologically tip our hat to this truth or not, Jesus is exercising his kingly rule and he is subjecting one by one systematically each of his enemies under his feet. And death is not the first enemy that Jesus will conquer. The Bible is very clear. He must reign, which is implying he is reigning now and will continue to reign until all of his enemies are under his feet. And the last of those enemies is death. And a lot of Christians, whether it's subconscious or conscious, they function as though the first enemy to fall, the first enemy to defeated, be defeated will be death, meaning that Jesus will basically experience here on earth, he's ruling in heaven, but it's an ethereal, spiritual, theoretical rule. 
It has no tangible, significant, physical reality here in the world that we live. Uh, the devil is still king of this world, and he'll always be king of this world until Jesus returns and he mm. conquers death. And th 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 this is the quiet part that they won't say out loud because many of them, again, it's perhaps subconscious and they're not even aware of it, but, but they, they're living as though Jesus is defeating none of his enemies now. He will eventually return, and the first enemy he'll defeat is death through because when he returns, we'll, we'll have the resurrection uh, and he is the resurrection and the life, and then he'll defeat secularism and transgenderism and abortion and all. And it's that's just not what the Bible says. What the Bible clearly says is when Jesus returns, he's returning to lay death in its grave and to cast uh, the devil who's already on a shorter leash to, to, to do away with the leash strategy and to cast him into the lake of fire. So when Jesus returns, that's not the beginning of the battle. That's the end. That's the final blow, which means the battle is happening now. The culture war, well, I don't want to get engaged. Well, that's great. Good for you that you're so sophisticated and mature that you can avoid the culture war. But that, that is not, the culture war is happening whether we like it or not. And we fight, we fight demonic pagan cultures with a culture. Culture just comes from the Latin word cultus. It means worship. That's all culture is. It's just society and who they worship, how they worship. Uh, and, and that's what Christians are doing is we are building a culture and we're building a culture with Christ as king, the one, the, the object of our worship with his laws for worship. And as we do this to pretend that we could be faithful in our homes and church and that it would have no practical, tangible effect outside of the home and the church is, 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 is to humor a, a, an impotent Christianity. Um, I don't want anything to do with a Christianity that transforms marriages and homes and churches, uh, but but is impotent in every other sphere. I would argue that if our homes really are being transformed and our churches really are being transformed, if these things, if there's really power in, in these arenas, it's going to bleed over into the culture. It's going to bleed over into our politics. And, and I think that's one of the things that's warned about in the New Testament is that in these last days, that, that there will be those um, who, who have a persona of godliness, the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And sadly, I, I think that even some professing Christians, and I'll be a little bit more truthful, many professing Christians actually fit this description more than more than a lot of atheists that I know. Uh, it's, it's the professing Christian who is particularly in the vein of pietism that really, really fits that mold of, you know, of, of having an appearance of godliness and their theology and their profession, but denying its power, that, yeah. that, that the kingship of Christ has no real tangible effect in the world today. And I, I just think that the Bible would utterly reject that notion. Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm probably one in the very small minority of people over in Australia who would have a more positive eschatology and who also would say that Christ is king. Not, not like you mentioned, up in heaven and not having any relevance on earth, but he is reigning here on earth. He is the king on earth. Um, I get so many looks and so many, oh, Evelyn, don't be silly all the time. Um, but like you mentioned, like when, once you see it, once you read the scriptures uh, and, and you, you see history, like you said, like 
history is so important to study for the Christian, as you, I think you so aptly tweeted a little while ago as well. Uh, you can't, it's undeniable the difference that you can see in, the, as you said, the last 2000 years. I mean, we started off with 12 disciples and now yeah. you've got you've got nations like China who have over 60 million professing Christians um, mm -hmm. and that they're persecuted for doing that as well. So you can see the handiwork of Christ um, even through all of the chaos. You can see, um, you know, the regeneration of souls. You can see it. I gave a speech in Sydney um, um I think it was November 2021, and they, I was asked to talk um, about the vaccine mandates and about the tyranny that we're seeing in Australia. And I thought, well, <laughs> this is your one opportunity to go out with a bang. And so I went on the stage and I proclaimed Christ is king and that he's seated on the throne, uh, that we belong to him. We don't belong to Caesar. And I thought there's going to be tomatoes, typical like, you know, movie scene. They're going to throw it at me and they're going to hate mm. it. But the crowd, there was over 100,000 people there. The crowd were cheering me on, they were applauding. And it was the most surreal feeling because I was like, I don't, know if these people are Christians or not. I, I, I didn't know, um, but it was received so well. And then after the speech, I had people coming up to me asking me what Bible they should start to read. And so wow. long story short, um, I, there's a bookstore over here in Australia, a Christian one that we teamed up with. And we got, I think, over 150 Bibles sent out across Australia to people who mm. came and heard me declare Christ is King. Um, but I tell you what, the week after that, I was massively under spiritual attack. Um, mm. it, he, Satan did not like that I, I declared that across Sydney on the megaphones, but um, it was amazing watching, you know, how that was received. It was really positive for me to see, and it kind of, in amongst all the doom and the gloom and the pessimistic eschatology and seeing Christians just basically sitting on their hands and going, oh, well, I'm just going to look up the clouds and wait for the stallion to come with Jesus and all will be well. Um, you know, amongst all of that, this was really good for my own personal faith and um, just, you know, confirmation that... Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm on the right track. I'm, you know, I might be persecuted for thinking it, but um, you can't deny the truthfulness of, of it all. And so it was a really humbling experience. It was really, uh, really uh, honoured to um, do that. And they asked me back for a second and third awesome. speech. So I was like, <laughs> that, that's not too bad. They know what I stood for and they still asked me back. So that's good. But um before we sort of finish, um, I know we're sort of going on the hour. I wanted to give you an opportunity um, to maybe if you wanted to spare a few minutes to sort of talk about the gospel for people who are listening who might not um, have a relationship with God. Um, we have a lot of people over here in Australia who are not Christians who listen to this podcast, and I'd love for you to just have this opportunity, if, if you wouldn't mind, to sort of mm -hmm. speak speak to those people who might be tuning in and who are a bit interested in learning a bit more about Christ. Absolutely. Um, real quick before I do, I just want to make one more point in terms of politics and those kinds of things and how Christian faith applies. A lot of Christians will say, well, Jesus himself said, render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar and render unto God what belongs to God. And my counter would be simple and it would be in the form of a question and not even a statement. Render under Caesar what belongs to Caesar. 
the way that I would respond is with this question. And who determines what belongs to Caesar? That's, I mean, that's what it comes down to. I've had a lot of Christians push back and say, you're too into the culture war. You're too political. These kinds of things. Jesus even said, just render unto Caesar, right? So that there's certain things that Caesar demands. You give them those things. And then you just focus over here in your house, with your kids, in your church, you know, and, and do this over here. Uh, but, but render that to Caesar. And I guess what I would say, you know, some people say, well, um, what, what's the distinction? Like, how, how do you decide what belongs to Caesar? And some people say, well, what did Jesus say, right? He, he looks at a coin. He says, whose image is on this coin? Okay, well, then, all right, you, if, that's, if that's the answer to the question, then, then use that same standard today. I, I don't know about Australia, but in America, every dollar bill and every coin has Caesar's image, has some politician, some, some mm -hmm. civil ruler on, on that form of currency, um, so if we're saying, well, anything that bears Caesar's image belongs to Caesar, well, then you, you don't need to, to pay 20% or 30% of taxes. Um, if you're going to say that that's the proper exegesis of what Jesus, then you need to pay 100%. So, so you want to like, I mean, follow the logic. It's illogical. Follow the logic. If you, you don't actually believe that, if you believe that, then you should have died a long time ago of starvation. You, your children, your wife, you should have given 100%, every dime, every dollar to Caesar. You don't really believe that. What you believe is that there actually is, there actually is a line. There actually is a boundary set by some kind of, of sovereign, some kind of authority above Caesar, that Caesar is not the final arbiter. He's not the king of kings. He's a king, but he is not the final authority. Render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God. Render unto God. And, and you believe in your heart of hearts, whether you admit it or not, you believe that not Caesar, but rather God gets to determine what belongs to Caesar and that he has revealed what he has determined belongs to Caesar and what doesn't belong to Caesar in his word. The Bible tells us how much we should give to Caesar, what mm -hmm. we should give to Caesar, when we should give to Caesar. And, and to deny that, again, I think is people speaking from privilege, the privilege of being in this very brief period of time where we're still living off of the fumes of, mm -hmm. of those Christians who were faithful, who came before us. But very quickly, if we don't fight back now, Caesar will demand everything. And then all of a sudden you'll hear a bunch of Christians talking about how they're theonomist in the gulags, <laughs> but it'll be yeah. too late. So be a theonomist now. All right. So the gospel, <laughs> so the gospel is this, um, gospel means good news. Um, the word gospel actually comes from, uh, it was kind of a hyphenated uh, word from God's spell that, that when uh, revival preachers of old would preach the gospel, um, they would preach the good news about Jesus. Um, people, onlookers who wouldn't even identify as being Christian, they would still see these massive events with thousands of people. And, and they said it was so quiet that people were listening so intently, you could hear a pin drop. And this is before amplification, those kinds of things. And so people called it when, when, when ministers, when preachers would preach the good news about Jesus from the scripture, they would call it the God spell. It was as though God was casting a spell over the people um, and, and they were so hungry and so eager uh, to hear the word of God. So the, the, the gospel is the good news and it's the good news about Jesus. A lot of times when people share the gospel, they share their testimony. And, and I think that there's power to that. I think that that's important, but we cannot blur the distinction. Um, the gospel is not your testimony. Your testimony is the story of what Jesus has done for you. It's the story of your life. 
right? And your death because of sin and your resurrection because of salvation and God and his mercy. Um, but the gospel is not your testimony. It's the testimony of Jesus. It's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so the gospel is the good news about Jesus, which assumes the bad news. The only reason that, that there's good news about Jesus living and dying and raising again in our place as a substitute is because there actually is bad news. And the bad news is that there is a holy God, which is not bad news in and of itself. That's a wonderful thing. But the bad news is that there is a holy God and that, that man is sinful in his, in his deepest inclinations and, and, and the, um, the bedrock of, of his heart's desires that, that we, have, we have gone astray, that, that Romans chapter 3, not one is righteous. No, not one. Our throats are open graves. We lie in wait to shed blood, that, that the heart of man, Jeremiah says, is desperately wicked, um, that, that it's filled with corruption. And that doesn't mean that everyone is, is in, in terms of their actions and behaviors, that everyone is doing the, the most possible wicked actions that, that they could. But it means that in our heart of hearts, um, we, we're in sin. The Bible says that anything not done in faith is sin. Anything not done in faith is sin. Romans 14 talks about that. So what does it mean to do something in faith? What well, it means, I've defined it in short like this. To do something in faith is to do it with, with a reliance on God's grace and a desire for God's glory. A reliance on God's grace and desire for God's glory. So the atheist or the agnostic or the Buddhist or the the Muslim or anybody else other than the born-again Christian, they can do outwardly good deeds. They can help an old lady across the street. They could cure cancer. They could do all these different things that lend towards the flourishing of humanity that actually not just it benefits humanity, but it only benefits humanity because it actually aligns with the law of God. Their outward deeds are in conformity with God's moral law, and yet even that is sin. It is filthy rags in God's sight if it's not done in faith, meaning that a person could be a good person in human terms, doing good things outwardly, but they're doing it with a reliance on their own strength. Or at best, they're doing it with a reliance on the strength of humanity. I couldn't have cured cancer if it wasn't for the research team here available and all of their hard work. They do it with a reliance on themselves or, or the reliance on demos, you know, man, and they do it for the glory of people the glory of themselves individually in a selfish kind of way, or the glory of people, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. You know, but, but what they'll never do, apart from salvation, apart from grace, being changed by God, they'll never do it with a reliance on God's grace and a desire for God's glory. And that is atrociously sinful. The unbeliever listening right now, what's the problem with that, Joel? Why, why does it matter? It matters because God made you. The, the the air that you're breathing right now is is his doing it's his gift it's this is his world your body is is his creation the, the air you're breathing is his gift to you the, the heart beating in your chest is only doing so because he's holding it in the palm of his hand he knit you together in your mother's womb god is sustaining you God's sustaining you. Even now, he didn't just make you, but he is keeping you alive, sustaining you, developing you. Everything we have, every good and perfect gift, the scripture says, comes down from the Father of lights. He's the one who gives us ourselves. In him, we live and breathe and have our being, our, our existence. It all comes from him. So to do anything without acknowledging 
giving credit, right? So I, somebody wins an award at the Oscars, which nobody watches these days because it's woke. But if they still did watch the Oscars, you know, and someone won an award, they give credit to someone. I want to thank my mom. I want to thank this person. I want right because it's just what you do. It's the right thing to do to acknowledge that all of our success is not our own doing. Right, that, that we make choices, we make decisions, we, we do great feats, but we are in many ways the product, we are the product of someone else. And that someone else is not merely other people, it's not just our parents, it's not just society, it's not just our employer or a mentor, but it is God. He made us, He sustains us, He's given us our IQ, He's given us our giftings, uh, He placed us in whatever nation we're in, and all these different things. So, to, to do good things outwardly that align with God's moral will and bring about the flourishing of humanity, but without acknowledging God's grace is offensive, arrogant, and wicked. And without doing it, to do it merely for the good of others, but not to bring ultimately God the glory that he is due, is likewise offensive. So anything not done in faith, therefore, is sin. And so the problem, the bad news is that, that there is a holy God and that we are sinful. Even the best of us are sinful apart from his grace in the sense that we don't acknowledge him and we don't desire to bring him glory. And it is rightfully his. He deserves it. it it's like plagiarism. It's like it's like writing the, the next great um, American novel, but, but, but ripping off somebody else and, and not giving any citations. It is wrong. It is morally wrong, and all of us have done this. And there's no way of making it up. There's no way of, of doing enough good that would counteract the bad. There's no way of, of self-atoning. And so the gospel is the good news that even though we have a thrice holy God and each of us have committed cosmic treason against him, there is one God and one mediator between man and God, the God-man Christ Jesus. And he didn't just die in our place, paying the, the penalty for our sin, but a lot of Christians even don't, don't quite understand that Jesus didn't just die as our substitute, but he lived as our substitute, which is why we're not merely through faith declared innocent of all wrongdoing, but we are imputed with righteousness, not just the absence of sin because he died the death that we deserve. The wages of sin is death, and he died that death in our place. He didn't just die on a cross as an example of sacrificial love. He died on the cross as a substitute, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but he didn't just die in our place. He lived in our place so that through his death, we are absolved of all our guilt. But through his life and his life and his perfect obedience in every moment, in every way to the Father in heaven, through his life living in our place, we're not just absolved of guilt, but we are infused, or I should say imputed with righteousness. And this righteousness is not received by work so that no man can boast, but rather it is received by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone alone. In that good news, we've been reconciled to God, and there can be no reconciliation horizontally, one man to another, apart from being truly and first and foremost reconciled to God. It's when people are reconciled to the holy God that they've sinned against, that they then are given, according to Scripture, the ministry of reconciliation to begin to reconcile with others. We will continue to have chaos and division and factions and murder and destruction in our world. World, fighting and infighting between our, our, our fellow man until we've first been reconciled to God. And there's only one way to do that, through the blood of Christ's cross. It's acknowledging my guilt and my need for a Savior and trusting in Him that I've 
put right, that I've uh, forgiven my, my, my transgressions, that I'm um, called and declared righteous and clothed with the righteousness of Christ, that I'm reconciled in relationship with God, no longer as the judge, but my adopted father. And I then begin to reconcile with others. And the world actually changes. The gospel changes individuals, but so profoundly that those individuals, as they then begin to live for Christ, change the world. It's not an impotent faith. It is a transformative faith, not only with individuals, but homes and churches and societies. Amen. That was um perfect way to finish. And I do hope and pray that if anybody's listening um, and they, they want to reach out either to Joel or myself, please do so. Please don't, don't be afraid to, to, you know, so put yourself in a vulnerable position because it is good news. Um, and, you know, by God's grace, we, we are saved um, and we can, you know, have eternal life with him. Um, but I, I really, I've really uh, appreciated your wisdom tonight. It's tonight for me, but I've I really appreciated your wisdom. Um, I could sit here and listen to what you have to say all day um, because I think it's very profound. I think, as I said before, there are not many people in this space who are willing to go into theology as well as the other sort of aspects and how it relates. So um, thanks for coming on. I, I'd love to sort of usher people in your direction. So before we close, if there's uh, links or uh, websites, podcasts, anywhere where I can sort of send people if they want to hear more of what you have to say, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate that too. Um, so Right Response Ministries, that's the name of the ministry. Uh, you can go to our website, rightresponseministries.com. Uh, but most people uh, just go to our YouTube channel. So Right Response Ministries on YouTube. And if you don't want to watch on YouTube, but you just want to be able to listen, that's how I like to do it. I like to be able to listen and multitask and do something else. Um, we're on any major podcast platforms. You can go to Spotify or iTunes and look up Right Response Ministries or um, go ahead and type in the, the search bar with your podcast platform, the specific name of our show, which is Theology Applied. So the ministry is Right Response Ministries, um, but the primary show where we have guests and, and we talk about these kinds of things, a particular doctrine and how it applies in every realm of life, that show is called Theology Applied. So if you type in Theology Applied on Spotify or iTunes or anything else, um, it'll pop up. You'll see my picture and you'll see Right Response Ministries, Theology Applied, and uh, that's, that's where we're at. Hmm, incredible. And I think more than ever, uh, Christians need to understand theology better. I think, you know, Romans 13 over the last two years has been the most misapplied scripture I think yeah. I've ever come across. You know, like you said, um, you know, give to Caesar what belongs to him. Um, it's I, I, I honestly have been in shock sitting in the pew of my church hearing uh, some of the things that's coming out of there. So yeah, your podcast uh, has been amazing for that, I would really strongly encourage people to get on and to support that, to listen, um, and so. hopefully we can extend that sort of, uh, you know, cultural shift over here in Australia. That would be ideal. But really appreciate you coming on today and um, hopefully uh, have you on again in the future sometime. Great. Thanks, Evelyn. I really appreciate it.